Hi, this is Jeff Steele. Today we are reading from Genesis chapter 30. We're picking up from the end of chapter 29 yesterday. The battle of babies had begun. Uh, Leah had given birth to four children to this point. We pick up in chapter 30. It says, When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? He asked. He's the one who has kept you from having children. Then Rachel told him, Take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children for me and through her I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan, for she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Then Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister and I'm winning. Meanwhile, Leah realized she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, so she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon Zilpah presented him with a son. Leah named him Gad, for she said, How fortunate I am. Then Zilpah gave Jacob a second son, and Leah named him Asher, for she said, What joy is mine! Now the other women will celebrate with me. One day, during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother Leah. Rachel begged Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah angrily responded, Wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now will you steal my son's mandrakes too? Rachel answered, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. So that evening, as Jacob was coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. So that night he slept with Leah, and God answered Leah's prayers. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. She named him Issachar, for she said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. Then Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. She named him Zebulun. For she said, God has given me a good reward. Now my husband will treat me with respect, for I have given him six sons. Later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named him Joseph. For she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. Soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Please release me so I can go home to my own country. Let me take my wives and children, for I have earned them by serving you, and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I have worked for you. Please listen to me, Laban replied. I have become wealthy, for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Tell me how much I owe you. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Jacob replied, You know how hard I've worked for you and how your flocks and herds have grown under my care. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything I've done. But now what about me? When can I start providing for my own family? What wages do you want? Laban asked again. Jacob replied, Don't give me anything. Just do this one thing, and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today and remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted, along with all the black sheep. Give these to me as my wages. In the future, when you check on the animals you have given me as my wages, you'll see that I've been honest. If you find in my flock any goats without speckles or spots, or any sheep that are not black, you will know that I have stolen them from you. All right, Laban replied, it will be as you say. But that very day, Laban went out and removed the male goats that were streaked and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted or had white patches, and all the black sheep. He placed them in the care of his own sons. When he took them a three days journey from where Jacob was, Meanwhile, 
Jacob stayed and cared for the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took some fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and, the, and for that was where they mated. And when they mated in front of the white streaked branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated those lambs from Laban's flock. And at mating time, he turned the flock to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. Then they would mate in front of the branches. But he didn't do this with the weaker ones. So the weaker lambs belonged to Laban and the stronger ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks and sheep and goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. Okay, it is uh, hard to know where to even start with something like this. You've got, uh, in the first part, you have a sister feud that really escalates when they start throwing their servant women at their husband to be impregnated by him. By the way, that's how you know a sister feud has really gone too far, just FYI. Um, They are bargaining and trading Joseph's sexual favors for food. Uh, Just to make sure we round out the chapter in a coherent way, we have bargaining, sneaking, lying, genetics, and animal husbandry. Um, did I miss anything? Okay. So this text is, is pretty long, so I don't want to spend too much longer commenting. I just want to point out a couple things. One really big thing that is immediately noticeable is the structure of this section. At first glance or at first reading, these might sound like completely unrelated stories, but I think this section of Genesis that consists of the Laban narrative, which is Um, chapters 29 through 31. And we're right in the middle of that here in chapter 30. Um, I think they're structured this way intentionally. So if you remember back in chapter 29, Jacob, who is himself a trickster and a schemer, well, he gets out schemed by Laban. And uh, Laban has his two brides for the price of one trick. Actually, it wasn't even for the price of one. It was the price of one and the promise of payment for the other. It was, it was two brides for the price of two, and, and Jacob uh, ends up kind of the loser in that exchange. So now in our text today, we have the first section is sister against sister, and the second section is Joseph against Laban. Both texts involve scheming and trying to one-up the other. So for the wives, it's a contest of who can produce sons for their husband. At one point, uh, Rachel says, I'm winning, which is hilarious to me. And just as a side note, I don't know that winning is exactly the best choice there. Um, because for one, if we're keeping score, she's actually losing. Um, but she is finally producing offspring for her family, sort of, uh, through her servant, which is what she wants so desperately. Um, so desperately that she's willing to use her servant in order to do it. Older translations usually use the word prevail here. Um, doesn't quite carry the same competitive connotation against Leah as winning. Um, more the idea of I'm struggling. I'm struggling so hard and I'm finally prevailing. And I think about this story from Jacob's perspective sometimes. Have you ever had a relationship with two people who are both really important to you Um, but they hate each other. Like maybe a spouse and a sibling or maybe two parents who don't get along with each other. 
maybe two friends who are both important to you or two roommates. Um, both you care about deeply, but they don't get along with each other. Well, imagine if you were married to both of those people, right? I mean, does the expression happy wife, happy life even apply if you have two wives who both hate each other? How do you even do that? And then to complicate it even further, you know, let's throw two more women into the mix as concubines, right? That will smooth this whole thing over for sure. Um, I read this and I think, you know, you're making a really strong case for monogamy here, ladies. Well, there's this interesting thing that happens when Leah's son finds some mandrakes and gives them to her. Rachel somehow finds out about it and she begs for some. In the ancient world, mandrakes were thought to be an aphrodisiac. So for Rachel, who has not had any children to this point, she's really getting desperate for any help conceiving a child. So desperate that she bargains away Joseph's short-term sexual intimacy in order to up her odds in the future with the mandrakes. So we get the idea that she's really desperate. And, and Jacob, by the way, comes home from work to be greeted by his wives who have already decided amongst themselves who he is spending the night with. And Jacob, like a good husband who's trying to keep the peace in a household full of angry women, does as he's told. Now, there's a lot else going on here, like Leah's desperate bid for her husband's love, which is reserved only for Rachel, and Rachel finally bearing a son of her own. So in, in this first half, we have this really weird, twisted contest of fertility that involves bending the rules and making agreements. So leaving that, we go on to the second half of this text, which is basically a really weird, twisted contest of fertility that involves bending the rules and making agreements. So remember that at this point, Jacob has been working for Laban, his father-in-law, for 14 years. And in that time, he's been blessed and Laban has benefited. The flocks have grown, but they're Laban's flocks. Jacob is just the caretaker. So he asks for this peculiar arrangement with Laban, give me all the defects, the sheep and goats that are born spotted and speckled, the ones that are not worth as much. That way it will be clear whose sheep are whose. Laban agrees to this idea that seems to favor him. And he goes one step further by then removing all the speckled and spotted sheep from the herd, presumably believing that if none of those sheep were there to mate, then there wouldn't be any more speckled or spotted offspring. And Jacob would not be able to grow his own flocks. But this time, it's Jacob who gets the upper hand, and he produces a strange method of influencing the selection of sheep which breed. There are a lot of theories about how this worked and what advantage the sticks served, but it's not especially clear how all of this happened. It's not even clear if it was uh, something known to the original readers or if the writer is just kind of making it intentionally vague about how all of this worked. I, I read a lot about this, actually, uh, for some reason, and there are some pretty interesting and compelling theories about those sticks that, trust me, you do not want to know. Anyways, the main point is that Laban schemed and tried to cheat but he was undone anyway. Jacob prospered while Laban diminished. This time, Jacob got what he was after. And another really interesting thing about that, 
uh, Jacob prospered from the birth of lambs to the flock, right? That's how he grew uh, his own wealth. And Laban tried to withhold the birth of the lambs for Jacob, right? So back in chapter 29, what was Jacob after when he first met Laban? What is the first thing that he wanted? He wanted to marry Rachel. Hebrew is really awesome when it comes to names because names are also words. And in this case, Rachel also means you lamb. It's what Jacob wanted from the beginning. And he's finally winning. Oh, um, one more fun little Hebrew name thing. Those sticks that Jacob used to win the game over Laban, the Bible makes a big point about how he peeled the bark so that they were white striped sticks. Though he put the white sticks. The word white in Hebrew, it's Laban. Laban got beat by Laban with all of his scheming. Um, maybe he was his own worst enemy. When I look at this section of stories, and honestly, the entire Genesis narrative as a whole, the thing that I'm most struck by is how God makes good on his promises, even though the people keep trying to manage God's blessing through their own means. It's a recurring theme. What do I mean by that? Well, God tells Abraham he's going to be a father of many nations, but he has no children. So his wife gives him her servant to have children with. Problem solved, right? It's no different for Leah and Rachel. They both use their servants to bear children for them in order to win some twisted contest over the other. Laban tries to control the outcome of this conflict with Jacob. And and honestly, so does Jacob for that matter. But who ultimately wins? I mean, I I guess Jacob sort of wins. But in reading the whole story, we see that God is really the ultimate winner. That all these people and all their decisions and all their scheming, all their competing with each other and trying to come out on top, it didn't actually get them anywhere. The winners won only because they were part of God's story, not because their attempts at control actually controlled or affected anything. In fact, when they did try to step in and take control, they made it worse. And the losers in those stories, they didn't lose because they didn't control enough or because they didn't try hard enough. It was because they were on the wrong side of God's story. That's it. Nothing they could do would have changed the outcome of that. And yet God showed so much grace to them, even in their defeat, much like he did for Leah and much like he did for Sarah's servant. So that makes me wonder, How much am I in control of the story that God is telling through my life? And if the answer is not very much, then that makes me wonder, how do I approach my life in a way that I can cooperate more with the story that God is telling And less of me trying to control the narrative to follow where I want the story to go. Who is really in charge of this anyway? Let's pray together. God, I want to recognize that you are your God and you're in control and and that you, I don't know, you told this whole grand narrative full of people who were really imperfect and they made lots and lots of mistakes. And yet, and yet, coming out of it was your family and your story. How do you do that? And, and how do you do that in my life? Um, 
I I pray that you will and that you and that you can um, that you can take all the mistakes and all of the um, I don't know the the bad decisions and the attempts to control things and and have things my own way and that you could take those and make something good out of them the way that you do in Scripture. God help us to be people who see better what you're doing and the story that you're telling so that we can be part of it and less trying to make our own kingdoms. Um, yeah, thank you for that. And uh, it would be an honor just to be part of your story. So um, we give you today, God, um, and, uh, and thank you for the story that you're telling in your name. Amen. Have a great day.